Hello, my name's Florence. Welcome to the OBS pod. I'm an NHS obstetrician, hoping to share some thoughts and experiences about my working life. Perhaps you enjoy Call the Midwife, maybe birth fascinates you, or you're simply curious about what exactly an obstetrician is. You might be pregnant and preparing for birth. Perhaps you work in maternity and want to know what makes your obstetric colleagues tick, or you want some fresh ideas and inspiration. Whichever of these is the case, and for that matter, anyone else that's interested, the OBSPOD is for you. Episode 104. The Who. No, I do not mean a 1960s English rock band. I mean the World Health Organization. Sometimes in maternity, you'll hear us talk about doing the who. What on earth are we talking about? Explaining that that's the World Health Organization doesn't actually make it any clearer than the pop band explanation. Today, I'm going to explain what is the who. Why is it important? When we refer to the WHO, we're actually talking about the World Health Organization Surgical Safety Checklist. We just call it the WHO for short. When you look at it, this is actually an extraordinary success story in terms of healthcare improvement. The WHO Surgical Safety Checklist comes from an initiative that started in 2007. The WHO Patient Safety launched a project, Safe Surgery Saves Lives. They wanted to improve the safety of patients undergoing surgical procedures around the world. Imagine setting that as your goal What a gigantic task. They gathered together an international group of experts and looked at what were the problems around unsafe surgery. Gathering together surgeons, operating theatre nurses, anaesthetists, safety experts, patients and other professionals, they came up with the WHO Surgical Safety Checklist. Of course, before they could start using it, they had to test it. When you look at how they tested it and the impact it had, it's actually extraordinary. The pilot of the 19-item surgical safety checklist was run in eight hospitals in eight cities all over the world between October 2007 and September 2008. The hospitals chosen represented a variety of economic circumstances and a very diverse population of patients. They looked at nearly 4,000 patients undergoing surgery. 
they looked at the rate of complications, including death, in the first 30 days after the operation. Before the introduction of the checklist, the rate of death was 1.5%, and afterwards this had declined to 0.8%. Inpatient complications occurred in 11% of patients before the checklist and 7% of patients after the checklist. And although these changes seem very small, they were statistically significant. This means that introducing the checklist at scale could save considerable numbers of lives. Wow, I mean, really? Wow. I remember when the WHO checklist, surgical checklist, was first suggested in maternity theatres. It was around 2010. And although we use the operating theatre, the original WHO surgical safety checklist, which was adapted by the NHS National Patient Safety Agency, for England and Wales, we were sceptical. We were told it needed to be implemented. To us, it felt like yet another piece of paperwork, something that really wasn't helpful, might hold us up in an emergency. And I have to say, we were really quite resistant. We found it particularly difficult in maternity because the original checklist really just didn't seem relevant to us. When you're trying to deliver a baby, some of the things on the original surgical checklist just don't make sense. For example, at sign-in, has the surgical site been marked? Risk of blood loss above 500 mils? Well, that would be every single patient for us. Have samples been labelled? Again, not helpful for us. We don't have samples generally. We have a baby. So, Initially, the implementation was a considerable struggle. We didn't see the relevance. It just became an annoying irritation. Fortunately for us, not long after, the RCOG, the Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynaecologists and the National Patient Safety Agency, adapted a maternity cases version of the checklist. And for us, this is when it started to become useful. But again, initially, we were very much focused on only using it on elective planned cases. We didn't see how we could use it in an emergency situation. So the who, what's it consist of? in maternity. 
The initial thing is to gather the whole team once we've seen all the women that are on the list that morning. So, for example, if we're doing a caesarean list, we will gather everybody together and we will talk through all the cases. What are the obstetric issues? What are the midwifery issues? What are the anaesthetic issues for each woman? Does the woman have individual requests and wishes that we need to think about? What are the risk factors for her? What are the things we might need to do differently? What are her allergies? And what's that workload like that morning? Part of the who is also introducing ourselves, making sure we all know all the members of the team that day. Because we form different teams on a daily basis, depending on who's on shift and who's available. Once we've done this briefing, we will then decide the order of the list. That might be to do with clinical reasons or it might be to do with different staff members. Maybe one of the women has a, has a potentially difficult anaesthetic or has potentially difficult surgery and we need to make sure a particular person is available or a particular piece of equipment. So we will decide the order of the list. This kind of team briefing before anyone goes into theatre is actually incredibly useful. But it can be very frustrating. It can be like herding cats trying to get everybody ready at the same time getting all the staff in one place when we're on a busy ward trying to organise seeing all the women. It's particularly difficult in our theatres because we've got numerous doors. So someone can go out of one door looking for the missing member of the team, only for the missing member of the team to come in from a completely different door in a different direction and miss them altogether. One of my consultant colleagues brought in a bell a bit like a school bell. And that has been incredibly helpful. So if you hear when you're on our labour ward something that sounds like a school bell, it's us ringing the bell for the who. Wherever someone is, whatever they're doing, they'll hear that bell and it's a distinctive different bell to our call bells and so everyone will know that's the who. They need to come and gather to have that briefing. So this is the first element of the who. The second element is when the woman is in the operating theatre. This is called the sign-in. Usually the ODP, the operation department practitioner, helps us do the sign-in. We confirm with the woman her full name, her date of birth, her hospital number, And we show everyone the consent form that she's been consented for the right thing and it's been signed by her and one of the surgeons. We discuss what we're doing, usually a caesarean section, and what category is it? One, two, three or four? Is the anaesthetist happy with everything? Is the anaesthetic machine and medication check complete? Does the woman have any allergies we should know about? This might be to a drug we might give or might be to a dressing we might use at the end of the surgery. Are there any problems with her airway if she needed to be intubated? Are blood products available if required? 
or a group and save in the lab? Has she had the anti-acid medication we would like her to have? Is the resuscitator checked and ready for the baby? And has the neonatal team been called if needed? This sign-in happens when the woman comes into theatre. Then we do something called time out. Time out is just before we make the incision in the skin and start the surgery. So we recheck, have all the team members introduce themselves by name and role. What is her name, date of birth, hospital number? The first questions are for the obstetrician. Are any additional procedures planned? Perhaps we might be doing a sterilisation or inserting a coil. Are there any critical or unusual steps that you want the team to know about? Are they, therefore, are we going to do anything a bit unexpected or different? Are there any concerns about the placental site that refers to whether it's a low-lying placenta or not? Then they'll ask the anaesthetist. Are there any specific concerns relating to the anaesthetic side of things? Then we'll ask the scrub practitioner. Has the sterility of the instruments been confirmed? And are there any equipment issues or concerns? And then finally a check with the midwife. Are cord blood samples needed? Is the urinary catheter draining? That's the catheter that's in the bladder. Has a fetal scalp electrode been removed if one was being used during labour? And has VTE prophylaxis, that's prophylaxis against a blood clot, been undertaken, such as wearing special stockings to prevent blood clots forming? Then we'll go ahead and do our operation. At the end of the operation, when everything's done, before the woman leaves theatre, again, we do a sign out with the whole team. We have to make sure that the name of the procedure has been recorded in the operating theatre register book. Have we confirmed that the swabs, instruments and sharp counts are correct? Have any specimens been labelled? Has blood loss been recorded? Then we discuss, as obstetrician, anaesthetist and midwife, are there any key concerns for recovery? This might be when we tell you what your blood loss is, how the surgery's gone and how long we're expecting you might stay in hospital. Have we prescribed blood clot preventing medication if required? And have we given the dose of preventative antibiotics that prevents an infection? Then we'll check, have there been any equipment problems identified? For example, if a pair of scissors needs sharpening or a clip doesn't close properly, the team will place a label on it so that when the pack goes back to be sterilised and cleaned, the team can check, sharpen or replace or mend the equipment before it comes back to us. And then a final check with the midwife. Has the baby been labelled? So before we leave theatre, we know that that baby is labelled as that woman's baby. Have any relevant blood tests, cord bloods been taken if needed? And have any cord gases that tell us about the condition of the baby been recorded if required? So it's quite a comprehensive list 
And when we started by introducing this maternity-specific patient safety checklist, or WHO, we found it quite cumbersome, quite difficult. We started, as I said, just with planned cases. But actually, very quickly, it's become something we can almost recite all of us, just off pat. Yes, we do have a paper copy in the women's notes, but we also have a large board on the theatre wall so we can read it out, out loud, even if we're scrubbed. Initially, when we used it, we would audit and discover that we weren't doing it for all cases. We would be doing it some of the time. We'd forget some of the time. But now it's become very much accepted part of our routine. When I was preparing for this episode, I thought it'd be interesting because something that I now take absolutely for granted was new only about 10 to 12 years ago. And that really impressed me as a embedded change that's happened over time during the space of my career. Once we'd started using this for planned cases, we quickly realised that actually one of the situations in which the WHO checklist would bring the most benefit would actually be in an emergency case. So we started to think how we could use it in an emergency situation. Initially, there was some resistance. People felt it might delay things. It might mean that we were slower in getting the anaesthetic administered or the baby out safely. But actually, we quickly realised that one could do the whole checklist quite quickly in an emergency situation. And it would be very useful because it would tell all the members of the team what we're actually worried might happen. What are the potential complications we might expect? Implementation was not straightforward. Initially, we suggested that people could start doing the WHO checklist in unplanned cases by introducing it in our training when we were simulating doing an emergency caesarean section or in an emergency case, we would demonstrate that we could use the WHO checklist in that simulation on that training day. And we made an example, a video of how to use it quickly and efficiently in that sort of situation. Now, these days, it doesn't cross our minds not to use it. Of course, we use it for everybody. And it's very helpful. If I'm taking a woman for an emergency caesarean during labour, when I'm worried about the risk of bleeding, it means I've announced to the whole room what I'm worried about, what extra drugs I might want the anaesthetist to give. And they're telling me if they're happy with their anaesthetic block and what complications they might be anticipating. And I can also articulate what I'm expecting in terms of the baby, what my main worry is, what's my rationale for bringing this woman to theatre in the first place, and do we need the neonatal team? And if so, what level of experience and how many? What complications could potentially arise so that we're pre-prepared for them? 
When I researched this episode, I thought, okay, so we're now 10 or more years on from attempting to implement this. Remember that goal at the beginning to improve surgical safety around the world, that gigantic aim. Well, how have we got on? And now we've implemented at scale. Have the results been borne out? The answer is yes. Since that landmark initial study, if you look at the WHO website, actually there continue to be studies in a variety of settings that demonstrate significant improvements in complication rates, hospital mortality and length of stay. So there seems to be very consistent benefit. In addition to reduction in hospital stay, mortality and complications, there have also been many papers published that show potential cost saving, which presumably is due to a reduction in complications, improved communication between members of team and improved safety culture. So it's been phenomenal. If you go on the WHO website, the checklist is available in a multitude of languages and it says it's now used by the majority of surgical providers around the world. There are kits to help implementation, videos on how to use the checklist, how not to use the checklist. So it's unbelievable to think that in 13 years, something has been so comprehensively introduced around the world that makes such a significant difference. I can't imagine how many lives and how many complications the simple checklist has saved. It's an interesting topic to reflect on. This didn't exist even a short time ago as when I started as a consultant and now the who, it's an essential part of our everyday. What's my zesty bit? I think for women and families, it's knowing that the who, the check that we do before we start your surgery, although it may seem a bit odd that we're introducing ourselves and asking things like, is the anaesthetic machine working? Are there any equipment issues? should hopefully make you feel safe, make you know that we're following gold standard surgical practice and you can be confident that we're doing absolutely the best we can for you during that surgical procedure. For staff, I think it's optimism. It means we can make a change that builds and improve safety massively. We've done it. We've done it before. 
So the next time something's introduced and we feel we haven't got time, it's a useless bit of paper, it's not essential, it's annoying, it's a change in our practice, we could look at the who and think, actually, that was something really worth doing. Some change is extremely positive. And if we can help improve complication rates and mortality rates with something so simple as saying these things out loud, well, what other changes could we make that could have that sort of impact that we haven't yet thought of? So be open-minded to change because it will inevitably help us reap the rewards. I very much hope you found this episode of the OBSPOD interesting. If you have, it'd be fantastic if you could subscribe, rate and review on whatever platform you find your podcasts, as well as recommending the OBSPOD to anyone you think might find it interesting. There's also tons of episodes to explore in my back catalogue from clinical topics, my career and journey as an obstetrician and life in the NHS more generally. I'd like to assure women I care for that I take confidentiality very seriously and take great care not to use any patient identifiable information unless I have expressly asked the permission of the person involved on that rare occasion when it's been absolutely necessary. If you found this episode interesting, and want to explore the subject a little more deeply, don't forget to take a look at the programme notes where I've attached some links. If you want to get in touch to suggest topics for future episodes, you can find me at The OBSPOD on Twitter and Instagram, and you can email me theobspod at gmail.com. Thank you for listening.